The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, I'm Jack Wilson. Welcome to the History of Literature. Let's get started. This is episode 46, The Poetry of the Tang Dynasty. We have a lot to go over today. We spent a couple of episodes on Augustine. We did that as a sort of a slow walk. This one we'll do as a jog. We're headed over to China now, not for the first time. Last time we were there, we took a look at Confucius and the poetry of the classic Chinese era. Now we're moving forward into the medieval period, China's middle period. This is a great period, a great period. This might be the pinnacle of Chinese poetry, of Chinese civilization even. From a cultural or artistic perspective, this one is up there. And it's extremely important to me personally. I'll go into that a bit later. Poetry is fascinating to me for some of the same reasons that religion is. The appeal is similar. It's nice to do this one back-to-back with the Augustan episodes. Both poetry and religion are intensely based on language, words, defining concepts, expressing ideas and thoughts. Language is at the heart of it. What is God, the God of Christianity, but the Word? And this, well, not to jump back too far, but we saw this in early societies, didn't we? The importance of narrative and storytelling 10,000 years ago, using language to express thoughts in narrative form, that's human. That's human, whether it's poetry or myth or a fictive entity like a corporation, or whether it's the word of God being handed down to humans on a stone tablet or through an epiphany, a revelation, recorded by a visionary or his or her apostles. And poetry has with it tradition and history and ritual, taps into all of that. In college, I dove into Ezra Pound, I suppose, came first because I was assigned T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland. I got hooked on that. Pound was the milior fabro of that poem, dedicated to him. Pound was a ringleader, a great recognizer of talent, great advocate for poetry. He was a poet himself, with all of his own enthusiasms. He was intensely American, and yet he traveled abroad. He was an appealing figure to me, at least when he was young. Even when he was young, he seemed older than everyone else older than Hemingway and older than Eliot. He seemed like an old mountain man, the one they turned to for advice. And then he became wrong. Suddenly that mountain man had judgment, serious judgment issues. He was intensely, horribly wrong. He wound up in a cage held by American soldiers for betraying his country. And then He was in a hospital for the mentally ill. It's a wild life for a champion of poetry. A man in a cage, sitting there, writing poetry. Pound was a man of enthusiasms, and his enthusiasms, when they weren't pernicious, were infectious. He made me want to read French troubadours, and he made me want to know more about Chinese poetry. Pound 
wanted the image. He held tight to the image. He was fascinated by the image. He was trying to clear the clutter of the ascendant poetry of his day, the long words, long lines, the affected style. Instead, he wanted direct images, feeling, coming through quickly, brightly, unadorned, a simple, natural style. And he saw something in Chinese poetry that appealed to him, that appealed to those sensibilities. He also saw a richness of tradition, or at least I did. There was something ancient, something beautiful about this being ancient. This Chinese poetry, Chinese language, this was formidable. It was like a a worthy religion. Thousands of years of tradition and history and ritual and developments and change had gone into this change, both change and timelessness. There was a lot of human effort, a lot of human achievement behind all this poetry, supporting it, giving it weight and grandeur. And of course, the language was different. That was another fascination for Pound. Not different in the way that French is different from English, but a whole different structure, a different grammar, different words too, ideograms instead of an alphabet. I had an American friend who studied Chinese in college. He was way behind. Most of the people who started with him were native speakers or partial speakers, I guess you'd say. People who had grown up with Chinese, he was brand new to it. Way behind. Had to immerse himself in it to keep up. He spent hours a day studying the language, trying to get it, trying to make it click. You couldn't just translate it in your head on the fly the way you might try with German or English. Or Sorry, English. <laughs> Sometimes I do translate English to English in my head after I haven't had enough coffee. You wouldn't translate Chinese the way you'd translate French or German or Italian the way you can transpose it in the words quickly on the fly. In Chinese, you had to think in a different way. He went through a stretch where his English got garbled. Everything was jumbled around in his mind. Once he was in a conversation, speaking in English, and he said, I am a 12 o'clock arrived person. He didn't say, I got here at noon. I've been here since noon. He said, I, I am a 12 o'clock arrived person. His head was completely tangled up or untangled. All that English was being unscrewed. It was like the really tight lid of a jar that you finally get to give. That was English. Now, the lid's coming off. What's inside? What can come out? These ideas, I love this kind of thing. I love thinking about what it means to be a person, a human being. How does our mind work? What's in place that governs us? What makes us think how we do? I also love stories and storytelling. I love philosophy, history, psychology, art. Why? It's human history, human achievement. Dreams and aspirations are embedded in there. Love and loss and friendship and hate and years and years and years of trying to survive. All of it wrapped up in art, whether it's a, a cave painting of a charging bull 
or a Beethoven symphony, or a poem. Now, Pound's enthusiasm was probably as much about English as it was about Chinese. Whatever it was, I shared it. He was obsessed with the idea that in English we say, someone is a farmer. In Chinese, they say that a person farms. In one language, our language, that man is something. In Chinese, the man does something. It's not an identity, a thing. It's an action, a verb. The thing is a man. He does something in particular. He farms. Now, is there a difference? Is there a meaningful difference? I don't know. Is there something about the culture that led to this change? Maybe. Or is there something about the difference, the different approaches that changes us? Do we English speakers lock people into their identities more? Do we stereotype more? Do we assign one activity to a person more than they do in Chinese? Do we struggle when people don't fit into a single category, an occupation? I don't know. To be a poet, do you write poems? Or are you a professional? You earn your living as a poet. You deserve the title. And a teacher. You need to be a teacher? Or do you teach? And if you do teach, are you not then a teacher? Even if that's not your title, even if that's not your your role in society... Maybe there's no difference. Maybe this isn't anything more than a curiosity. And in the end, we think the same way about poets and teachers and farmers as Chinese people thinking in their language. Think about men who farm, women who teach, women who write poems. Maybe. Maybe this is just a curiosity, but it fascinates me. Nevertheless, all this was in my mind in college when an opportunity arose to go live in Taiwan. And by opportunity, I mean it was basically the only possible option I had. No other opportunity presented itself. So, Taiwan. Taiwan. Why? I didn't really know. But there was Chinese there and a need for me. I had a cousin who was willing to help me out. And there was the draw the pull of Chinese. I was infused with Ezra Pound's spirit and that whole thing. So why not? Taiwan, for those of you who might not be familiar with Taiwan, for years, Taiwan claimed to be China, actually be China, all of China. In a way, they did have a claim. Half the world recognized them as such. When Mao had taken over, the government that was then in Beijing fled to Taiwan. They took a a lot of culture with them. They preserved it there. It was still there when I got there. The idea was that they would eventually return to China, to mainland China, take over again. In the meantime, they viewed themselves as the caretakers of China, the Chinese tradition. There were differences. For example, Mao simplified the Chinese characters to make them easier to learn thinking of the billions of people trying to improve literacy rates. So he simplified the Chinese characters. They didn't do that in Taiwan. They used the old ones. I plunged into studying Chinese. I was looking at these old characters, the full ones, the more detailed ones. 
I was learning spoken Chinese too, but I enjoyed the written characters the most. I was also studying religion and philosophy and art and whatever else I could get. The people, talking to people every day, that was my job. I was looking at all these things, though, through the prism of the language, which I had to understand, which I was eager to understand. I wanted to see how it would change me. I had flashcards that I carried everywhere. Whenever I had some time, I pulled them out to study. In my days when I wasn't teaching, ride my motorcycle to a tea house, check in, buy a pot of tea, read novels, read poetry, study Chinese. This was when I started having dreams. I would imagine myself in a land of enormous Chinese characters, like a forest made of brush strokes. Or an amusement park, I could climb up one side, a brush stroke that was real, 20 feet high. I'd climb up one and slide down another. Or I'd be trapped inside one. Or I could navigate a, a giant page of characters climbing from one to the one to the next, dropping from one to the other, like Jackie Chan, scaling the walls to the rafters onto the roof, jumping onto a flagpole, reaching for the next foothold. Except instead of being inside some wooden shack, I'd be on a page full of Chinese characters. I had with me a photocopied article. Ezra Pound's article on Chinese characters as a visual medium for poetry, with ideas inspired by the papers of Ernest Fenelosa, a professor who, I think the story was, the professor had died and the widow wanted Pound to continue the professor's work, recognized that Pound would be interested, and he was. The ideas in that article fascinated me. Pound looked at the characters, the ideograms, and he said, we don't have anything like this in English. English doesn't work this way. When we have the word horse, in English we have five letters, H-O-R-S-E. There might be a relationship with other words. Letters might be the same. The combination of letters might be similar. Or the word might sound like something else. We certainly have rhyme. But the letters don't have any visual connection to a horse. But if you look at the ideogram, the Chinese word for horse, you see the body and four legs of a horse. It comes from a picture. It's an abstracted version of a horse. Originally, it was a drawing of a horse. But that's still there in the character. It's not always true. It's not true of every word. Sometimes words are just what they are because they sound like another word that already existed. If you're saying the words the same way or a similar way, you borrow that picture. So not every, it's, this isn't true for every word, but it's often true. It's enough. It's true enough, often enough, that it's interesting and different from English, where it's pretty much never true. What did this mean? I couldn't stop thinking about it as I immersed myself in Chinese. There's a famous example where the word for good is a picture of a mother and a child. That's the universal good, motherhood. Love, protection, it was true thousands of years ago when the character was first developed. It's true today. If you're trying to find something good, you might look at that relationship to express it. 
The word for sun was essentially just a circle with a dot in it. Today, written in brush strokes, it had become a little more like a square with a line through it. And of course, the sun deserves that. You see the word for sun, it stands out in the page, how simple it is. You think of the most natural things, the most basic elements of our world. The sun deserves that that place. It's earned it. <laughs> the most basic, a starting point. Today, if we were to use that shape, we might use that shape to describe a smartphone. But it really belongs to the sun. Nothing in the alphabet works like this. So Pound is looking at English and saying, what are my tools here? As a poet, what's available to me? Rhyme, rhythm, meter, vowel sounds, appearance, maybe, okay, yeah. There's some visual aspects to lines on a page, line lengths, indentations, stanzas. You can play around with it, but mainly you have sounds. Even on the written page, what you're talking about are sounds. Words echo one another. Words rhyme. Expectations are set up through the rhythms. They resolve themselves at the ends of lines, or they carry over into the next line. That's interesting, but it's audio. It's all for your ear. Maybe it's your inner ear, the one you're hearing as you're reading. But that's what you have. In Chinese, though, it can also be visual. What is the sun? It's a square with a line through it. What is the moon? It's like a sun with beams. Square with a line with it, with two lines coming down. And what is the word for bright? The sun and the moon together. Each of them smaller, into combined into one character. Because those two things, what do they have in common? Brightness, luminosity. The word for tree looks like a drawing of a tree. The word for woods or forest looks like two trees. Two trees together. And the sun behind a tree is the word for east. That was a discovery I made that once you know the building blocks, you can guess what the words will be. Sometimes... You might be right. You look at a word and you say, I know this is this is the character for man, and this is the character for tree, and here's the character for entrance. What is this combination? A park ranger? Turns out I'm close. The word means guard. And you can work in reverse. Here's the word for alone. And you break it down and you see man, walk, Dust. All of that combined into the word for alone. And you think, if you're trying to memorize it or trying to understand it, you think, there's a lonely man walking on a dusty road. Loneliness. That's my image of loneliness. It's like a little poem inside each word. It's fascinating stuff. Pound claimed that a sculptor, a friend of his who was a sculptor, could look at Chinese words and guess what they were. With a really high degree of success, his eye was so developed, he didn't know Chinese, but his eye was so developed at abstract, sorry, at abstracting shapes from objects, 
because that's what he did as a sculptor. He needed to see things that weren't there. He needed to understand the lines, the forms of an object. He was so good at it, so well-trained, that he could look at the Chinese characters and say, I know what this is. I know what picture this once was and has now been reduced, simplified. Okay, all this is prefatory to today's subject, the poetry of the Tang Dynasty. I love Tang poems. So let's jump into that. What are the features of these poems? What are they about? Who were the poets? How was poetry used? What was the impact? And do they speak to us today? And then I'll tell you about one particular poem. It might be the most famous poem in Chinese history, and it changed my life. This is a good time to make yourself a cup of tea. I'm going to do that now. We can meet again with our cups of tea and our curious minds after the music. poetry of the Tang Dynasty. Remember what we saw with Confucianism. We're, we're jumping ahead. It's 7th century AD is when the Tang Dynasty began. It ran for about almost 300 years. But let's look back. Remember our look at Confucianism. We saw the notion of the individual and the citizen, that the individual achieved perfection or, or one's highest idyllic state through being a model citizen. It's like the, in some ways it'd be like the dream belief of a state. You, you couldn't do, you couldn't come up with a better system from the state's point of view. A way to keep people in line, keep things organized. But there were benefits or promises of benefits to the individual as well. Augustine struggled with this, right? Order, inner harmony, it led him to God. Well, it's not hard to see the appeal of Confucianism to people as well. It's an ordering, a way of dealing with the chaos, taming it, keeping your own impulses and confusion under control. And in Confucianism, the individual plays a role in a well-ordered family, and the individual also plays a role in a well-ordered society. It's combined, overlaps. The family is a microcosm of the state, your job as a, as a citizen, as an individual, well, what are the most prized values here? Duty, obedience, respect, loyalty. Now, some would say, and some have said, that all this prescribed behavior is a limitation. It squeezes the life out of you, dulls creativity, takes away a sense of self. But if you're looking for order, whether that's internal to deal with your own inner demons and impulses and wants and needs and choices, 
and all the tiresome business of being human, mistakes, or whether it's external, you're tired of the wars, conflicts, and all the the business of a society trying to order itself, trying to set some boundaries around human behavior, well, it would help with that too. And it unites the two, the internal and the external. It unites the two, the two great orderings, unites them in the form of government service, which was hugely, maybe supremely important in the world of Confucianism. Okay, so all of these people headed to the government, viewing that as the the, impo- the importance of that as being important to one's society and one's own fulfillment. What happens in governments? Maybe not always, but often there's corruption, greed, power. Why is that? Is it because the ability to control others corrupts an individual when you exert control over things, over nature even? If you can build a dam... You can irrigate a field, or even if it's something less grand than that. If you're exerting control over things, the way things are, the way people interact with the world. If it's your job to be in charge of the pencils that get distributed to a school, does that affect your head? Does that make you think differently about yourself? It can be the smallest thing. It's incredible. I've seen this over and over. I run this. I'm in charge of this. I can do this. Feel my power. If you think I'm exaggerating, if you think that doesn't happen, well, come and visit me sometime in Washington, D.C. Okay, so in this Tang period and even before, cracks are starting to show. This monolithic government project where individuals subscribe to a belief system that serves the state, some flaws are appearing. Where's the individual order in a corrupt world, in a greedy world? How much expression do you tamp down before people start to look around and say, is this life? I feel like I have passion here and no outlet for something that feels very natural to me. And I look around and I think, why am I doing this? Because I'm not seeing that everyone else is holding up their end of the bargain. I'm not seeing a well-ordered state. I'm seeing a greedy, corrupt state that's fighting all the time. So we see a new figure appearing in literature, the recluse, the dude who opts out. Sometimes it's literally a hermit living alone away from society. Sometimes it's the individual traveling alone on a journey, shunning society, or the other form of opting out, just not participating in government service, not viewing that as the highest ideal, choosing something else. And the government didn't help its cause here. I talked about the greed and corruption already, but there's also a a style. The government workers had developed a kind of hypocritical manner, an affected style. There was self-importance, but more than that, eccentricity, a superficiality, self-consciousness. These were not the humble servants you might expect to find if you're reading Confucius. There was a showiness, an exaggerated manner, 
Thoughtful people notice this kind of thing. They think, why are you acting like this? How is this in line with Confucius? How does this come from Confucius's teachings? We also see in this pre-Tang period the influences of Buddhism and Taoism. New religions are pouring into the country, promising a means of personal salvation. Promising something different. Confucianism, that's the state. The tired, crusty old state, that's IBM. That's the New York Yankees. That's the known and familiar, the boring. Here's a new path to explore. What were thoughtful people to do? These forces, all these forces, you can see how the patterns and the trends were forming, the influences that flow together like rivers and streams. Thoughts are like water. They flow. They find the cracks. They seek their level. They dry up too, and they freeze and expand, but mostly they flow and fill. They flow and fill. And in this period, there were great dynasties falling and new ones emerging multiple kingdoms, north and south. These are concepts that influence and impact different cultures, different traditions, different values, different forms of art. Everything's in flux in this period between Confucianism, between Confucius's day and the Tang dynasty. Everything is changing. Something old might persist, or it might not. It might be a, a safety zone, a place to retreat to. Or it might be something to cast aside. It might be a marker of the other, of the past. Often the surviving political regimes are the ones that adapt and absorb, not the ones that impose and enforce. The Roman Empire did a lot better when it followed the former path than when it tried the latter. Same thing happened here. Same dynamic, same tensions. Two cultures encounter one another. One asserts itself militarily. What does it do with the culture? Does it change people's minds? Does it do it at the point of a sword? Or does it embrace the good things, the good aspects? Does it allow that culture to continue, the people to continue with their religion, their belief systems? Does it absorb that belief system and introduce it into its own population. In the end, at the highest level, here's the key question. What does it mean to be an individual in a society? What is the role of a citizen? Now, here's where we see some synergy because here's where we get back to literature. The composition of poetry became a part of government service in 690. It's part of the entrance test to become a government worker. The better you are at writing poetry, the higher your placement in the government. Let me, let me repeat that. And this time, imagine I'm talking about applicants to a government post today. The better you are at writing poetry, the higher your placement in the government will be. Everyone wanted to work for the government. That was the highest the highest calling. Have you finished laughing yet? We are miles from that, aren't we? In the way we think of what poetry means to us, the respect we have for people who write it. Miles and miles. Poetry as the path 
to success in government employment. Let me put some more dates around things so you get a sense of someone born in the Tang period, what influences have been around for a while, what they would mean to someone who comes up in the Tang dynasty in that period. Buddhism is flourishing. Scriptures are translated into Chinese. That's in 350, for about 200 years, 350 to 550 AD. Dynasties are united in 589, so it's not the old Han dynasty. Here it's more of an uneasy, fluid regime. We see different world monks, travelers, seekers. Confucianism is old by now. And then, about a hundred years later, poetry becomes part of the entrance test for government service since 690. What does that say about poetry and the way that it's valued? What does it say about who they were looking for in the government? And what does that do to the government to have good poets running the place? What does it do to those workers who are encouraged to be good at poetry? What does it do to the rest of society? To the poets who are living in society? Let's take a look at three. Three. Luminaries of the Tang Dynasty. There's Wang Wei, it's born in 699. Li Bai, it's also called Li Po, born in 701. And Tu Fu, born in 712. All three born into this new world, this environment where poetry is encouraged with all this new emphasis on the individual, the new religions and the paths of salvation, the role of the citizen in the state. All this is in something of a transition. And the role of poetry is more important than ever. Formally important. Your individual expression, your ability to write poetry is valued. That environment, has it ever been equaled? It's like theater in the Elizabethan age. Sure, we had a Shakespeare then, and he was a genius. But the conditions for his genius, for his particular genius, and for his genius as manifested in plays, in playwriting, those were all so perfect. Those were important. The conditions, the atmosphere, the thriving theater scene, all that supported and magnified the genius of Shakespeare. Without that, we wouldn't have Shakespeare, or at least we wouldn't have the Shakespeare that we have today. And as with Shakespeare... These three that I've mentioned were not the only three poets. There were others. We can focus on these three today, and we will, but we should at least briefly talk about some of the others, some contemporaries and earlier examples. The predecessors I like, their models to emulate or resist. You can see the seedlings of the later poets in the earliest poets from this era. Here's one, an early one. He predated the Tang Dynasty, Tao Qian. He lived from 365 to 427 AD. He was a farmer slash poet. Why is that slash important? That he had two roles. He was a peasant. He chose the life of a peasant. He was humble. His character in his poems is a, a bit of a bumbler. He's not the state actor, not the dignitary that we saw during the Confucian period. He's a, f a farmer. 
And that's the point of his poetry and the point of his era. Be natural. An emphasis on being yourself, on being natural, on doing the things that feel natural to you. Natural to you as a human being. And remember the word natural and how it relates to nature. He tells this great story of the peach blossom spring. Tells the story the peach blossom spring in his poem. It tells the story of a hidden community of people who live in the mountains, unknown to the larger world. They fled 500 years earlier, and they're now living simply in peace, farming. A fisherman finds their village by following a, a hole he sees in the mountains with a spring coming out of it. Once he encounters the people, he tells them about the modern world, the fighting, the clashing dynasties, the impact on the people. And the people of the village are astonished, and they tell him, thanks, but no thanks. We don't need to, to follow you back. We don't need to rejoin that civilization. Goodbye. And oh, by the way, there really isn't any reason for you to tell other people that we're here. Please don't. So the fisherman notes the path on his way out, but then he's unable to find the society again, and nobody ever does. So that's the example for the listeners. But there are people still there, living better than we are, living without all this chaos, living as nature intended, in harmony with nature. There's a better way. The story was very popular. Why? Because people aren't robots. They're not cogs in the empire. They were participating, sure, just like we all sign up for whatever jobs are available because we have to eat to survive or we, we are compelled to join the military when that's needed, when the state asks us to or requires us to. We all do that out of a sense of, of duty, out of a sense of necessity. But people are also wistful. They think for themselves. They long for something better. And that's okay. When I was in Taiwan, I'm jumping ahead of myself here a little bit. When I was in Taiwan, I read the book Wild Swans. And if there's ever been a better book about trying to fit in and also trying to be human, I'm not sure what book that is. It's a staggering account of families, different generations who lived through the Cultural Revolution, other eras in the 20th century in China. It's a great book. And it's a reminder that people, real people, are complex and complicated. And for every person who goes along with whatever the state is up to, there's another one who isn't happy about it. And in the Tang Dynasty, those people were writing poems. What was Tang poetry? It was about the usual suspects, love, nostalgia, grief, but there was more. Letters, notes, poetry was almost like a, a form of general communication. Almost like an email today. You might show up at a party with a poem you wrote for the party. A visitor to a famous place, a sightseer, wouldn't return home with a bunch of photographs. Of course, photography hadn't been invented, but you know what I mean. Wouldn't return home with slides the way people did in the 60s. Photographs on your phone the way we might today. He'd write a poem at the site and he'd come home with a poem to read to his friends. Or 
You might go to visit your friend or an acquaintance. That person's not home, so you write him or her a poem and leave it behind. Poems in the Tang Dynasty are just a part of life, in other words. It's not just handled by a select group of people who are called poets. Poetry is just something you do. Remember Ezra Pound and the farmer? The man is a farmer, or the man farms. Think about that in the context of the Tang Dynasty. The woman is a poet, or she writes poetry. I've been using he. You probably noticed I switched to she. Women wrote poetry, too, in the Tang Dynasty, at least those in the highest society. Women who were part of the court, or those on the fringes of society. Talking here about women trained in the arts of love. We have poetry from both camps. Now, talking about this, leaving a note for a poem, or sorry, leaving a poem as a note for a friend who wasn't at home when you went to call on him, that makes poetry sound almost mundane. If a a note to a friend is a poem, then what do we read today? A lot of notes to friends? No. Some stood out. Were 30 or 40 individuals who were better than the others. Incredible. We have their poems. And there were also a few ordinary people who happened to write a poem that transcended its time. They're still read today. One hit wonders. It's a rich tapestry, a great time for poetry. All this poetry coming forth from all these different people like rock bands from the early 60s until, let's say, the year 2000. Get some great music out of a a cultural experience like that. And then out of this group of 30 or 40 poets who had an identity, who had a following, we have our three. Wang Wei, Li Bai, Tu Fu. I'm getting to them. Let's talk about the poems and their formal structure. The form of the poems, of the poetry, is just what you'd want from a great era. There's enough structure that you can see patterns. You can see people working within the restrictions of particular forms, which is a good thing because that can be creative. Think of all the the mileage poets have gotten in English writing sonnets. But also, in the Tang Dynasty, there's enough Lack of rules. The rules are loose enough that nobody feels too restricted. You don't need to get stuffed into some little box. Every time I read a haiku, I cringe. There's this awful, lazy preconception that the point of a haiku is to write lines with five, seven, and five syllables, and that this is clever. It shows you can count. That alone is not enough. That alone is worse than if you hadn't tried at all. You see a haiku and you can tell that they're just pleased with themselves, that they were able to write five syllables, seven syllables, five syllables. It's awful. It's like a bad rhyme, lazy rhyme. Don't rhyme if you're going to submit a clunker. Don't sit there like a puppy, eager for a pat on the head. Write a real poem. Sorry for the rant, but I take this stuff seriously because I don't care about a form. It's not an abstract, aesthetic principle. 
I care about the people, the expressions being conveyed, the writers, the readers, the ideas about life that are shared. Because there are people here, even in the forms. When poems are good, the people, the human aspect transcends the form. One of my favorite forms from the Tang Dynasty is the structure. Four rows of five characters each. These poems sit on the page like a box, like a block, a nice handsome block you can step on to reach something else. Well, it can be written. Poems can be written on scrolls too, going vertically as well as horizontally. But I like the ones where it's laid out like a box. Simple, organized, plain, unadorned, classic, five characters in a line. And the five characters might be translated. Now we're getting back into the elements of the Chinese language, the way that that works. If we translate each of those five characters separately, we might get this in English. Pool, deep, water, sinks, boat pole. We translate those five words into English as, I push my boat pole into the deep pool. Or maybe with some other context, we might feel comfortable enough to say something like, Using my pole, I steer my boat down the deep river. But if you get too far away, if your translation, if you start to insert too much into the translation, you get away from the feeling of the poem in Chinese. The simplicity, the elemental qualities of it. Simpler might be better, and I'll explain why. But first, I want to talk about how the characters of the authors shine through. You might think from lines like pool, deep, water, sinks, boat pole. No individual author would shine through, but of course that's not the case. We have characters. Those 30 or 40 poets I talked about are often referred to as friends or acquaintances. Reading their poems is like being at a party with colorful characters and getting to know their personalities, their individuals. It's like those great pre-Socratic philosophers, when you read summaries of them, where they all have their own take on life, their own point of view, their own agenda, and you go from one to the next, enjoying the conversation. Wang Wei was a court poet, an aristocrat, a favored son, but he was also a little unusual, a visionary, if not quite a mystic, a seer. He had a rich, poetic sensibility, almost like a painter. There's a famous line of his, the setting sun goes down beside a bird. The imagery is stark. It's an unusual thing to consider. Putting those two things in mind, very simple. Two simple things, but there's a lot in there, in the juxtaposition, don't you think? Both items are essential. The grandson, the enormous, the important and the tiny bird, which is also important. And there they are, both for us to contemplate together, the wonder of creation in the vast and enormous and fiery. There's also the wonder of creation in the minute, in the delicate wisp of life, the beautiful, intricate bird. 
There's a passage of time. The sun is setting. It sets a mood, and there's a person, the narrator, the poet, the person who sees both and notices both and feels something, something registers in him. That's a third element for this, the one who recognizes what this is, who notices the juxtaposition and contemplates it, reflects upon it. That's someone else for us to think about. Who is this person traveling around in this crazy, busy world and stopping to notice something so simple, but so essential? And I say it's simple, but in some ways, it's also complex. The meaning, the depth of it, unspools the more we think about it. Wang Wei became a Buddhist. You can see this, the elements of this, and you can see his painter's eye in many of his poems. He's concerned with absence and space and shifting perceptions. Is that a mountain there in the background? Or is it the darkening sky? Which one do I see? That's Wang Wei. Tu Fu is the next one on our list. He's been extremely popular in China. He's held up time and again as possibly the greatest poet in Chinese history. And as the poet who best knew what it meant for a person to be great, he's revered in every era except one, his own. That's an interesting story. Interesting to think about that. Why is that? Why does every subsequent generation appreciate Tu Fu and not his own? Here's my private theory. He brought Confucianism back, which is fine for later generations who understood that it was important to have that blending. But in Tu Fu's time, maybe it was too soon. They were too busy rejecting it to appreciate that the best approach would be to blend the two, that both of them, Confucianism and anti-Confucianism, they're both part of Chinese society and culture. You couldn't have one without the other. Both made sense. That tension was one to understand and celebrate. Tu Fu blended. There's order, there's structure, there's fitting in, there's a sense of duty. You can think of him as a historian, a kind of Virgil, a chronicler, a state poet in some ways. He's also focused on the role of an individual, the tiny moments of a life. And he portrayed himself as a sufferer, someone forced to endure the hardships of politics and the political storms around him. You see where this is headed? All the politics, the political storms, leads to a need for order. But once that order's there, we need to focus on the individual too. And Tufu's honest enough to talk about the negative effects of that order. He's not just a lackey for the state. He talks about corruption and war and the impact that it has on individuals as well. Listen to this, how he goes about this. Here's a few lines from Tufu's Song of Pengya. This is translated by Stephen Owen. This should give you the flavor, give you a sense of how Tufu sets up what his agenda is, how he gets it done. Listen to the narrator as I read these lines. Listen to how things shift from large to small. 
Song of Panya. I remember when first we fled the rebellion, hurrying north, we passed through hardship and danger. The night was deep on the Panya road, and the moon was shining on Whitewater Mountain. The whole family had been traveling long on foot. Most whom we met seemed to have no shame. Here and there birds of the valley sang. We saw no travelers going the other way. My baby girl gnawed at me in her hunger, and I feared wild beasts would hear her cries. I held her to my chest, covered her mouth, but she twisted and turned, crying louder in rage. My little son did his best to take care of things, with purpose went off and got sour plums to eat. It had thundered and rained half the past week. We clung together, pulling through mud and mire, and having made no provision against the rain, the paths were slippery. Our clothes were cold. At times we went through great agony, making only a few miles in an entire day. Fruits of the wilds served as our provisions. Low-hanging branches became our roof. Now, you hear that? How that sets us up, that voice? A voice like that can go wherever it wants now. You could talk about the rebellion and the reasons for it, the effects of it, which side was right and which side was wrong. You could encounter travelers who would discuss these things with you. Or you can stay focused on the individuals, the couples and families and people trying to get by during this period, on this journey. You focus on them and you can make your larger points, your themes. You can talk about war and you can talk about love. You can talk about families. We're 20 lines in and the narrator, wise, human, knowing, honest. The narrator is all set. That's too foo. Okay, we've come now to my guy, my poet, Levi, my favorite of the three, one of my favorite poets in any language. And we've come to one of his poems, my favorite Chinese poem, which also might be the most famous poem in China. Remember Augustine when he heard the voice that said, take this book and read it, and he opened the passage in Paul's letters? I had a moment like that. I opened a book. I opened it right to this poem. Just so happened that it was a famous one. Basically, like Mary had a little lamb or something like that in English. Roses are red, violets are blue. It's a very common Chinese poem. But for me, it was a revelation. All new. Let me explain. Li Bai had mysterious origins, more unusual origins than Wang Wei or Tu Fu. He was not a son of the court. In fact, he came from nowhere, really. Somewhere in the fringes. Some people think he might have been Turkish. He was a Taoist and appears to have been helped by a Taoist wizard. That's a real term for what they were, how they were viewed. Kind of like how we would refer to someone as a magic priest or something. Alchemy, astrology, that's the world that he came out of. And there was a path for Taoist wizards or other interesting eccentric people. And it was to go to an academy called Hanlin which was run by the empire, but filled with entertainers, geniuses, people with unique talents. And even there, Levi stood out. He drank, he got in trouble, but he was also a genius, someone who saw the world differently. And for an age that valued poetry, that recognized poetry, 
where everyone was writing poetry, being able to see things differently was valued. Writing with energy, writing something exciting, it stood out. Levi was celebrated for this. And yet, that makes it sound like he's writing about action scenes or something, something kinetic. No. My favorite poem is about as quiet as a poem can be. It's called Jing Yi Si, or Quiet Night Thought. You could translate that as Reflections from my bedroom on a quiet evening, or Alone in my bedroom I think of quiet things, something like that. But you can see the problem of translation. The title is three words, Quiet Night Thought. Three simple, basic things. Quiet, you know what that is, it's quiet. Night is just night. Thought is just thought. Try to limit yourself. Don't turn this into explanatory sentences, which take you away from the beautiful simplicity of that. Let those three things follow one another in your mind. Quiet. Night. Thought. My Chinese teacher, a wonderful woman I knew in Taiwan, brought over a couple of books to help my studies. They were for children, illustrated books with classic Tang poems. I grabbed one of the books and opened the book to this page. Something about the drawing, something about the words on the page seized me. Take, read. Could I read it? Not without some effort. Of the 20 characters, I would guess I knew about half of them. I recognized the character for Moon and the character for Bright. Others I would need to study. I was in my pattern, though, of trying to figure out the meaning from the way the words looked, trying to let my immersion in Chinese, the months I had spent, all the hours I had spent with my flashcards in those tea houses and waiting in lines or in my bed at night, all that time I had spent with the language and the culture, but mostly in the language, trying to see if I could guess what the characters were, like Pound's sculptor friend with less natural talent. I have no ability to sculpt things, but with more knowledge. I had more building blocks of what the Chinese parts were. Using that to guess what those parts became when they were combined into a whole, that was a worthy task. It wasn't always right, but it was doable. There were only 20 to look at, and I had my teacher right there to help. So I set to work, figuring out the poem, unlocking its secrets. I'll do it here for you, walk you through the four lines, line by line. Here's the first five characters, and you'll have to forgive my Chinese pronunciation. It's been a while since I've had a teacher standing by to correct me, make sure that I spoke these in the right way with the right tones. I'll do my best. First five characters, Chuang Chen Ming Yue Guang. We translate each of those five, literally. We get these five words in English. Bed, front, bright, moon, light. This could translate, translate into something like 
bright moonlight before my bed. But before we get there, let's think about this. Think about the way this would work if you're reading these in that order in Chinese. And if you were just looking at one character at a time in isolation, bed. That's the first one, bed. You're in bed. You're not asleep, but you're resting. You're trying to sleep. Front. Something disrupts you. Something not in your bed, in front of your bed. What is it? Bright. Yes, something bright. Moon. Light. Yes, it's moonlight. We have a whole little scene set for us in these five words. It's nighttime. There's bed, there's the moon, and there's the person who's experiencing all this. And we're seeing the echoes. Three of these words have a picture of a moon in them. Three of the five. Even the character for front looks a little like the character for light. Next line. Yi shi di shang shuang. First word, suspect. Second word is ground on frost. Okay, here we go. Translation of this might be, I suppose it is frost on the ground, or can there be frost already? Or even getting at the getting at the meaning of this, it might be it looks almost like it could be frost on the ground. All that comes from those five words, suspect. Suspect comes first. Suspect what? Ah yes. It's the moonlight on the ground. It looks like something else. Looks like frost. Now, we're in the countryside, right? It's winter. It's fall, turning into winter. We're somewhere in the country, or we're at least in an era where the moon shines in through your window. Lays on the ground. Looking almost like frost. And we have our noticer, our first-class noticer who spent two lines now just telling us something very simple that he sees. Zhu Tao Wang Ming Yue. It's the third line. Raise, head, look, right, moon. Simple to translate. I raise my head to look at the moon. I raise my head to view the bright moon. You look up. The bright moon interrupts your rest. You're settling into bed. It looks almost like frost there on the ground, so you you trace the source of the beam. You look up to the moon to gaze at this beautiful thing, casting this beautiful light that's given you this vision. It's made you think there's frost on the ground, even though there may not be. Di tao shi gu xiang. Lower, head, think of old home village. I would translate this as, I lower my head. 
thinking of my hometown. Let's do all four lines in the English translations together. Bright moonlight before my bed. I wonder if it's frost lying on the ground. I raise my head to look at the moon. I lower my head, thinking of my hometown. Ah. <laughs> Here we go. That was me. That was me. Everyone must think that. Everyone must think it's them. Everyone goes through that at some point, but that's how I thought I was living in Taiwan, riding this crazy motorcycle through this crazy traffic, eating whatever I could figure out how to order, sweating, living through a monsoon, on a mattress, on a floor, in a one-bedroom apartment that I sometimes forgot how to get to because I couldn't read the signs very well and the whole city looked the same to me. So I got lost all the time, reading, teaching, writing, being generally 22 years old and trying hard to absorb as much as I could to expose myself to as much world as I could, to as much life, because my actions couldn't keep up with my mental energy. That was me, a traveler alone. And yet, that was also me, the one who wanted 20 simple words to calm me down, to express a feeling, the one who thought of his hometown and everyone there that he never saw. A friend of mine died when I was there. I would never see him again. I had missed my chance. What else was I missing? By being in Taiwan, by traveling. What comfort and safety had I given up in my old world? What did it mean for me that I was giving them up? Thanksgiving and Christmas without my beloved grandparents? How could I not miss that? It filled me with warmth and sadness every time I thought of it. And I thought of them often, and my parents, and all my friends, and me, the old me, the one who had lived there for 18 years, happily fitting in. I still miss that guy sometimes, even though now there was a new me that I was trying on, like a new set of clothes. That poem shot right through me. 20 pictures, 20 words, 20 simple building blocks, and a man, Levi writing in the 8th century, who seemed to know exactly what I was feeling, and who didn't need to ornament it in a novel or a long essay about nostalgia or friendship or absence, who was comfortable enough to show some restraint, to keep the emotion pure, just this simple, down to its basic elements, moonlight in a quiet room, a pattern on the floor, something shimmering, making you wonder at your own senses for a moment. You tip up your head to gaze at the moon, the same moon that's always there, the one you looked at when you were in your hometown, the one that shines on that hometown tonight just as it shines on you wherever you are. And you lower your head. You're not thinking about the moon. You're not thinking about the science of the moon or the brightness. You're thinking about your hometown. And look at me took me an hour, over an hour to get here to this point, to talk my way through all of this. It took Lee by ten seconds to say the same thing. And he and I, I feel, are in ex the exact same place. This is what matters. This is what counts. In Taiwan, I could recite this poem. I'd get halfway through the first line, and a whole school full of kids would start, start reciting it with me. They're probably 
callous to it. That's my guess that in China they're as callous to this poem as we are to Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. It's hard to hear that fresh for the first time. But for me, at that time, I was completely stunned. And I thought, I have so much to unlock, so much to unlock. All this culture and history and thought and knowledge and sensibility, my mind unlocking them, my mind being unlocked. I had never encountered anyone like Levi or anything like his poetry. I had never been so stunned by the single thought that I could see moments or recognize the importance of seeing moments, of noticing things, of seeing pieces of life a little more clearly, fitting smaller parts into the whole, into the whole rich tapestry, the pageant of life. I saw how to savor them, these small moments in all their complexity, and how to back off and to experience them and celebrate them for their simplicity as well. Twenty simple words, four neat rows, five little word pictures in each one. And they changed me. They gave me something new to think about. They gave me a fresh view. They gave me, literally gave me, a world. That's it for this week. Hope you enjoyed that with our guest host, Wisconsin Happy Boy. We're on Google Play now. And of course, you can always find us at the old standbys, iTunes and Stitcher. If you like the show, please subscribe, leave us a review, tell all your friends. Maybe you have your own story of an epiphany, the moment when literature struck you as a worthy endeavor. Feel free to send me an email at jackwilsonauthor at gmail.com J-A-C-K-E wilsonauthor at gmail.com or leave a comment at jackwilson.com I'd love to hear your story and maybe share it with my listeners You can also call our hotline to leave a message The number is in the show notes It's a normal phone number that goes to a voicemail system I don't track it or anything I'm not going to call you with for any reason It's just a way for you to Send me your feedback. Tell me what I'm getting wrong or what I'm getting right. Tell me about your own experience. Love to hear from you. Okay, that's it for now. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. (laughs) ¶¶